Oh, brothers and sisters, please turn once again in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. And as you do, we're going to continue in our study of the Olivet Discourse. Why is it called that? Because Jesus spoke these words from the Mount of Olives, which was opposite east of uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And as we've been studying this passage, you're getting a little bit of a dose of eschatology. Eschatology, what is that? To some of you, it's a very familiar term. You have thought through. It's the doctrine of last things. And some of you have thought through it, and you have a rather well-formed eschatology. To others of you, it's, it's a new concept. It's a new idea. Um, let me just say that the word logia, logi, uh, when you think of ology, where does ology come from? Well, it comes from the Greek word logos, which is a, a profound Greek word, but it essentially means speech. And when you put another word in front of it, such as the word for God, theos, you have theology. Theology, it is speaking about God or the doctrine of God. If you put the word Christ in front of ology, you have Christology, which is speaking about Christ or the doctrine of Christ. Now, the Greek word for last is eschatos. So if you put that together with ology, you have eschatology, and it's speaking about last things. It's the doctrine of last things. It's the doctrine that teaches us how God is going to wrap up human history, how the world is going to end, and what's going to follow after that. And for some of you, you've walked around this for years, and you have an eschatology. For the others of you, this is all new. And it may not be the time for you to even dig into it in any depth. I find that in the Christian life, there's a season for everything. And the study of eschatology is a little bit downriver from some other things. If you're a new believer, you want to be clear about your theology, your doctrine of God, about the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation. And maybe later on, you'll take up the matter of eschatology. So it's not a, you know, something that needs to be on the first front burner necessarily. But because of this passage, we're getting a little dose of eschatology. Why? Well, because what I seek to do and what many preachers seek to do is called systematic expository preaching. That is, we preach consecutively through a book of the Bible. And that's good for several reasons. First of all, it forces me, the preacher, to preach on whatever's next, right? And it keeps the preacher from preaching on only those subjects that he's comfortable with or familiar with. Now, I'm going to skip over these things because I don't like this, but I'm going to, I've got to preach on what's there. It's also good for you because you get a balanced diet of the scriptures. You get what the Bible calls the full counsel of God, right? So in preaching through the Olivet Discourse, which is a difficult passage, and if you're here for the first time, it's a little more intense and a little more dense than it usually is, okay? Because we have to work through a, a difficult passage here. No apology, just to let you know, it's not always this intense and this dense, okay? But... Um, we got a little eschatology going on here in this passage. The subject was broached by the disciples when leaving the temple with Jesus for the last time, they are marveling at the magnificence and majesty of the temple buildings. And they tell Jesus. And Jesus responds and says, you know what? This whole complex is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. This whole thing is going to be raised and wiped out. That shocks them. And as they go to the Mount of Olives, they ask Jesus, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And see, they lumped all that together. They thought if this temple complex is ever to be destroyed, it must be at the end of the age when Jesus comes back. 
Now, as you know from our study in Mark's gospel, the um, disciples often misunderstood Jesus. They were slow on the uptake, as we would be. They didn't always get it. And what they thought would be one event was really two events. Jesus is promising that the temple will be destroyed and he will come back, but he knew that these are two separate events. And so his answer, he, in, in giving his answer, he gives it twofold. Tells about the temple being destroyed, and then he will talk about his second coming. But in my understanding of the Olivet Discourse, from verse 5 to 31 of this passage, Jesus is still answering the first question. When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And he's talking about what will happen in 70 AD. He gives some preliminary signs. There will be false Christ. There will be wars, rumors of wars. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes, widespread preaching of the gospel. But then there will be one big sign that will signal that the temple's about to be destroyed. He called that the abomination of desolation. And we understand that to be when the Romans eventually come into the temple with their ensigns and these pagan Gentile Romans come in, desecrate the temple, and they eventually burn it. That is the abomination of desolation. We also, from last week, understood that that's what Jesus is talking about here as that great tribulation. That's the great tribulation he's talking about. And if you're not convinced of that, go back and listen to the message from last week where I showed you from Old Testament scriptures that um, this seems to be hyperbolic language describing the tribulation. But now we come to verses 24 to 31 for this morning. Follow as I read those verses in Mark 13. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When this branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you darkened and you have stars falling from the sky, that didn't happen in 70 AD, literally. In fact, that never has happened. So that must be talking about the future return of Christ. Isn't that your initial reaction? Something as cataclysmic of that, as that must be pointing to the end of the world. But the text says, but in those days after that tribulation, in fact, Matthew says, immediately after that tribulation. Now, if we understand that that tribulation is referring to the horrendous things that happened in 70 AD, then what we just read must be taking place shortly after that, right? Not in the future, but shortly after that, around 70 AD, Immediately after that tribulation, these things will happen. Well, here's an important insight. We need to hear the Bible as the original hearers would have heard it. What would the ears of Jesus' disciples have heard when they heard Jesus say, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, 
and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. What would they have heard? Keep in mind that the disciples were Jews, and they would have been raised in Judaism with the Old Testament. They would have learned the Old Testament from young childhood. They would have memorized large portions of the Old Testament, and they would be very familiar with the imagery used by the prophets of the Old Testament. I want to point you to some of the statements by the prophets that parallel this language. This language is talking about cataclysms in the heavens, right? Sun and moon darkened, stars falling from heaven. Is that to be taken literally? If it's literal, it hasn't happened yet. It must be in the future. But listen, you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to turn you to several passages of Scripture. I think they are in your notes. And compare the language. First of all, in the book of Judges, chapter 4, beginning at verse 24, here is when Deborah and Sisera defeated a Canaanite king. Listen to the language, Judges 4.24 and into chapter 5. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Then in chapter 5. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord, hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, I submit to you that probably did not literally happen, but he's using this dramatic language to describe the judgment on a Canaanite nation. In Ezekiel chapter 32, the prophet Ezekiel uses similar cataclysmic kind of language. Here, the context is God's judgment upon the nation of Egypt. Reading from Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8, and when I extinguish, well, first of all, verse 15, when I make the land of Egypt a desolation and the land is desolate of that which has filled it. He's talking about judgment upon Egypt. Now listen to verses 7 and 8. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Do you hear, brothers and sisters, he's not talking literally. He's using dramatic language about cataclysms in the heaven to describe his judgment on earth of a, a nation, in this case, Israel, or rather, Egypt. Now, in Jeremiah 4, this is God's judgment upon Judah as he is bringing the Babylonians against them. Jeremiah 4, 11. In that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a scorching wind from the bare heights in the wilderness in the direction of the daughter of my people, not to winnow and not to cleanse. Verses 23 and 24. I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. You see, this dramatic language of the upset of the heavens and the mountains is not literal language, but it's language that is used to describe